Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen, the movies we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And uh, yeah, I specify movies because we're um, we're not going to be doing TV on the Movie Journal anymore. <laughs> we are going to do occasional TV journals on the Patreon. Yes. Uh, when we have fun TV stuff to talk about. And if you don't know about the Patreon, go to patreon.com slash battleship retention. That's right. Sign up now. There's uh, two different levels. All the details are on there. It's a great way yeah. to support the show and get a bunch more content. And a special thank you to those that already have, uh, have done that. Yeah. That was very, it was very exciting. Um, we got more people than I expected uh, in the time, in the time that it's been up. So uh, very exciting about that. Yeah. If you want to hear, you know, so that's the thing is you're getting it for free for a while, but if you want to know my views on seasons of the amazing race from 18 years ago, <laughs> you're going to have to pay for it now. All right. So um, who is this? Uh, by whom is this movie journal brought to the listener? There we go. Uh, this movie journal is brought to you by Miniflix, the premier streaming site for award-winning short films. Miniflix acquires short films that have premiered at Cannes, Sundance, TIFF, and many more, meaning you can see great short films available nowhere else online. Miniflix also offers several Oscar-nominated and Oscar-winning short films unavailable on, tri- on typical free video platforms. Uh, I was actually scrolling through their catalog today, and they have a very extensive catalog of... Oscar nominees, both the uh, Oscars proper, but also the student Oscars, which can be interesting to watch as well. <coughs> anyway, uh, along with these great short films, Miniflix also has a blog featuring editorials and interviews. This week, there is a discussion with director uh, Tyresha Poe, whose film uh, Selah and the Spades premiered at Sundance. Uh, and this interv- in this interview, she discusses her film career, as well as the influence of Chris Marker's La Jetée, one of the most fascinating short films in history. So to check out this and other articles, just go to uh, the page for this week's movie journal and click on the Miniflix banner at the bottom. All right, so I'm going to jump right in. I'm doing two in a row here, which is fitting because these two I saw back-to-back. I went to uh, so the um, the UCLA Film and Television Archive. I know you're uh, or a graduate of the UCLA What's up? Uh, Film School. So the UCLA to- uh, Film and Television Archive is doing a, a series called Liberating Hollywood on female uh, directors, and um, I went to see the... Um, one and only film uh, directed by playwright Jane Wagner from 1978. It's called Moment by Moment. Okay. It is, um, you know, when, uh, when, when John Travolta signed his initial deal with his producer, something Stigwood or whatever, he signed a three-picture deal. Those three pictures were, of course, Saturday Night Fever, Greece, and the one everyone remembers, moment by moment, <laughs> um, which is it's kind of a fascinating, uh, fascinating story. The, um, the there's a woman who wrote a book that the whole liberating Hollywood uh, uh, series at UCLA. Um, it's at the Hammer Museum, but it's mm-hmm. that's where the UCLA screenings are. Um, the woman who wrote the book introduced the movie, and she talked about how basically like John Travolta was kind of using his newfound clout to. He was a big fan of. Lily Tomlin Mm. seen her on Broadway in a play written by Jane Wagner and he loved it. And he was like, I'm John Travolta or whatever. I can (laughs) get stuff done if I want. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. Um, This play's so good. It's like, sir, can you please keep it down? (laughs) um, That's exactly the character he plays in this. Um, So he, he, he wanted to, he basically got this movie made because he wanted to work with Lily Tomlin um, and Jane Wagner 
and it was a massive flop. Hmm. It was uh, hated, apparently. Interesting. Um, the Critical, story is, critically as well. Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the the story of the movie is that Lily Tomlin uh, is a very rich housewife. She has no real job or ambitions really of her own, but her um, uh, husband is leaving her for a younger woman. So she, or, or maybe she, her husband is cheating and she's decided to leave him. But because these are incredibly rich people, leaving him means that she just moves into their Malibu beach house while he stays at their main mansion. Um, and so while she's staying at the beach house, she encounters this sort of uh, drifter, runaway young man, played by John Travolta, who's uh, very go-with-the-flow and also very, like... What's the word for... Um, he's not very self-aware. Like, he uh, keeps oblivious. Just, like, yeah, he's, yeah but he keeps, like, showing up... He clearly likes her and she's clearly annoyed by him at mm-hmm. first, but he keeps just like showing up because yeah. he was supposed to be staying at his friend's beach house and they flaked on him. So he's kind of like living out of his car near the beach. Okay. So he just keeps showing up because this lady is talking to him. And then eventually they start to have a relationship. It gets a little bit deeper. Um, and uh, it, it, it's a really interesting, I would say it's does it definitely does not deserve its terrible reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's maybe a little bit uh, awkward at times. Um, it, it, you know, it feels a bit of first time directory yeah. uh, in um, directory. Uh, no, oh. <laughs> um, uh, in, in its assemblage or whatever, but it occasionally stumbles upon some really beautiful uh, compositions. And what it really is, is a fantastic portrait of two great actors at very specific times in their careers. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, cause it's, I mean, it's definitely funny, but you wouldn't call it a comedy. It's more of a romance, you know, a May December romance type thing. Um, uh, and I know I'm a hypocrite because I always complain about May December romances when they go one way, right. one or the other way. Some, for some reason it doesn't bother me as much. Um, but, uh, it's in terms of their, uh, sexuality like this is John Travolta at his sort of peak animal magnetism you know right. he's like uh, he spends a lot of the movie um, shirtless and he's got that that Saturday Night Fever strut but he's still right. got that like sort of baby faced pouty lip thing uh, he's clearly working uh, his magic on Lily Tomlin. But what's also interesting is that Lily Tomlin is not an actress that you'd normally think of sexually uh, or playing sexual roles, right. you know, and there's, um, you know, a lot, she's going a lot further in that, in that respect, um, than I'm used to seeing. Uh, it's a really fascinating portrait. It is also a fascinating portrait and I should wrap up and move on to the next thing, but it's also a fascinating portrait of Los Angeles, 1978, both, oh, okay the Malibu scene, which is sort of like at its post sixties, like really getting into being the rich, rich place, yeah. you know, fewer of the beach bums like John Travolta and more of, of that. But then we also see hit the flop house that he's staying at on Hollywood Boulevard. Hmm. And if you think like 1991 or 90 pretty woman, Hollywood Boulevard was CD. Yeah. 1978 Hollywood Boulevard looks like a fucking blast. Yeah. I'd love to hang out there. It looks like times square. It's, full of the you know adult bookstores which when i moved to i lived off of hollywood boulevard my first place when i moved here in 2005 there was like one or two 
adult bookstores left, but that's like what this place was. There were adult bookstores, there were arcades, bars, pizza places. There's still lots of pizza places. Oh, yes. Hollywood Boulevard. Um, and it's the Walk of Fame. And like there's a whole scene where she offends him. He goes back to his flop house. She doesn't know how to find him. So she and her rich gal friend drive from Malibu to clearly a part of Los Angeles. They don't normally hang in. And there's just right. long sequence of them driving and walking around Hollywood Boulevard in 1978 at night. Mm-hmm. And it's so great. It's almost worth watching the movie, uh, just to see that little time capsule. I meant to tell you, by the way, uh, I was, uh, in Jan- back in January, I was, uh, giving, uh, Rides uh, for Lyft, and I dropped somebody off at your old uh, apartment complex. It was very exciting. Oh, yeah. Uh, I guess I'm not that surprised. There's a lot of units in there. There are. <laughs> so yeah. Statistically, it was probably going to happen eventually. <laughs> That's true. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. But um, every time, I'm sure my my wife Natalie is sick of like every time we're in Hollywood for something, I'm constantly like. Here's what used to be here, you know, 14 years ago. Here's what it is now. That, you know, that, that would uh, get on my nerves. <laughs> but I just, I, I, uh, I guess I'm, I guess I'm the old guy who just like is always surprised that things change. I know things change. Yeah. In fact, I'm always trying to be aware of things changing. It's, but I also, uh, I think that's why I'm always I'm, because I'm not doing it in terms of like, oh, this neighborhood's really gone to. Cause, no, I mean, it has just, gentrified a lot, and some of that's sad, but. Um, so, you know, some of it's also, there's, it's less, you know, there's, there's bars that I wouldn't have gone to <laughs> right. that I would go to now that I, that weren't there before. Um, but and in general, there are a lot more bacon wrapped hot dogs. So there's that. Um, well, I guess that's at Hollywood and Highland, which yeah, was yeah. already, by the time I moved here in 2005 was already a lost cause Hollywood yeah. and Highland. But as you went East down Hollywood, mm-hmm. like it used to be like Hollywood and Vine when yeah. I, lived there was not there was the, the metro station there mm-hmm. but there wasn't the, now there's a w hotel and there's like a starbucks and there's no. a gastropub and there's like it's um that used to be the seedier end of that yeah. strip anyway that's not what we're here to talk about moving on what are we here to talk about David? the second the second half of this double feature was now i mentioned that moment, moment by moment is the one and only film that jane wagner directed but there were f- further lily tomlin jane wagner uh Collaborations. Collaborations is exactly. Yeah, they are married for. now. Um, that's true. Yes. So um, they married in 2013. I looked mm-hmm. it up. Yeah. Um, including Jane Wagner wrote a uh, one woman show for Lily Tomlin that was on Broadway. It was called mm-hmm. The Search for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe. And then um, uh, filmmaker John Bailey made a movie out of it. Okay. So it's uh, in the. It's very that that, that sort of uh, I feel like that that kind of one person show is very Eric Bogosian type of sure. like eighties. I feel like these things were big in the eighties. Yeah, you know, I think about like the character that this is maybe a very too specific reference, but uh, do you know the Martin Scorsese short Life Lessons? Oh yeah, Steve Buscemi. Steve yeah. Buscemi plays. Yeah, like there was this kind of performance art, like just doing little monologues of different characters. Um, that was a very, very big thing at the time, I guess. Uh, and so I guess in the Broadway version, it was just Lily Tomlin in sort of a plain um, outfit, you know, no makeup or costumes or anything, just doing all of these different characters. And some go away and come back, and some you only see, you know, she plays a couple of prostitutes that you only see for, like, one short scene. And then there's the almost the entirety of the second act is her playing one character over, like, 20 years. Um, 
And so it just it, it just jumps around for all these different characters. Uh, and in the so for the movie version, John Bailey clearly filmed. Uh, in a sound studio, an approximation of the Broadway version of just Lily Tomlin and one outfit doing all the characters, but then also filmed, like, created sets. They look kind of fakey and stagey on purpose, but did makeup and costumes and created sets and jumps back and forth through um, through just seeing Lily Tomlin do it and then seeing them more, a little bit more fleshed out. Um, uh, and uh, I, I, I thought that approach was was really interesting. There's a, a lot of some of this stuff feels a bit dated. There is also oh, very timely for this week. There is a mercifully brief part of Lily Tomlin in blackface. Oh boy, um, she plays that character a number in a number of points. But I think maybe even John Bailey knew at the time, but didn't know not enough, didn't know enough to just not do it. But yeah. knew to only show her in the costume once. Right. And other times it's just her playing the black woman character, but it's because it's, it's, um, there's, I told you about the the one character who goes for 20 years and it's, uh, it's the most poignant part, um, of the story. It's a, it's, or of the, of the piece. It's a story of a woman who is a 1970, early 1970s, you know, Ms. Magazine, ERA, bra burning feminist Mm -hmm. and keeps those values inside. But as you see her, get married and fall in love and have kids and have a career you'd see her sort of becoming more and more compromised or more and more right. bourgeois you know and um she has a line it, it's she said it's, it says something like it's it's hard to be politically conscious and openly mobile at the same time which is sure. honestly true um and that stuff's very poignant but in the early scenes when you see her you know they're like making signs for like a pro ERA march. Yeah. Her and her feminist pals. And there's a quick bit of Lily Tomlin, blackface, short curly wig, and like military fatigues. It is, oh, uh, it like, um, even the type of like, you know, okay. A screening at the UCLA film and television archive of these movies on a Friday night. <laughs> I'm 36 years old. I'm the youngest person. Oh, sure. Yeah. So even these old fossils and dinosaurs <laughs> who go to these kind of screenings, even they, like there was an audible, Ooh, in the room yeah. when it, when it showed that. Well, the timing um, was just right. Or you could say wrong. Uh, I guess. Yeah. I guess that did come out. This was last Friday. The, yeah. That the, the governor Northam thing came yeah, out yeah. before that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I am, we don't need to get, I don't want to get into this you know whole mm. issue but i like i don't think i've ever in my life seen a person face to face like a white person in blackface i've never seen that happen no and apparently it's been rampant i've just had my head in the sand or something like apparently and, and what's more we did theater yeah, it exactly. feels like just yeah. almost by accident it should have happened uh, uh yeah. yeah yeah apparently it's been rampant um i i didn't know about this uh and uh uh, I, I say, yeah, throw all the bums out. Um, all right. Wait, what? <laughs> throw the bum? It's not like he, it's not like he delivered, uh, not that I'm going to defend it, but at the same time, it's not like he took the oath of office in blackface. Like it was, <laughs> no, I still it's, say it's when somebody like tries to defend it. Like he had such a weird Robert Blake esque defense, uh, of that yearbook photo. Where which, he well, first he said yes it's me or one of them is me but he didn't say which one right. and then he said neither one is me yeah but I have done <laughs> he said 
He goes, I, something like, like, no, I did blackface in like a Michael Jackson impression yeah. thing. And so it's almost like Robert Blake being like, no, 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 that wasn't my, like, I didn't kill, what was it, his wife or girlfriend? Yeah. It's like, I didn't shoot her because at the time I was going back to the restaurant to pick up my gun. It's like, oh, right. That's, that's a weird <laughs> uh, alibi. To Okay, so to finish the governor thing, but still... Uh, uh, he, I, I think he should resign. I also think that the uh, attorney general, who also, uh, have you not counted? Oh, this? that one. I, did. I think I had okay. heard that someone else mentioned it, but I didn't so know the who whole it was. line of secession because the okay. lieutenant governor now has a sexual assault uh, allegation oh, okay. against him. And then the third in line has sort of preemptively come out and said, yes, there are pictures of me in blackface too, which is like, I think he just, he's watching TV goes, all right. I think I see where we're headed here. <laughs> so I think, uh, yeah, clean house, get them all out of there. Um, the other thing, I, I can't go into too many details, but do you know, uh, I used to, on two different jobs, I worked with the guy who is the guy that Robert Blake knocked when he, after he, let's allegedly killed his wife. Yeah. He went and knocked on neighbor's door and said, help someone shot my wife. Yeah. I know the guy whose door he knocked on. Oh, wow. <laughs> I worked with him on two different jobs when I first moved out here. And then, Here's another thing that's even weirder is that my wife now works with the guy who was his roommate at the time and was also there. So like I keep my wife and I strange. keep working with people who were there when Robert Blake allegedly shot his wife. Anytime that happens, it's just like, is life running out of extras? <laughs> like what is going on here? Um, uh, that's crazy. Yeah, that's a crazy story. Yeah. So uh, that's search for signs of intelligent life in the universe. It's uh, it's a little drama kitty. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's uh, it's effective at times. It's embarrassing at other times, especially when she plays. You know, because Jane Wagner would have been in her like late forties, I think, when she maybe early forties. Yeah, uh, maybe late forties when she wrote it. Because this is ninety one um, when the movie came out. It was probably a year or two before it was written. Um, so the part where Lily Tomlin was playing like a. Uh, teenage punk girl uh, performance artist in her own right yeah is a little bit like i don't know it, it uh i i don't know why this is my always my reference but do you remember the the did you ever see woody allen's hollywood ending no it's terrible yeah but it has like a son character who's like a disaffected youth with a mohawk or whatever and yeah. it feels like just a compilation of every most every superficial stereotype that's already at that point more than it was probably 20 years <laughs> you know yeah. 50 20 year old stereotype anyway so that stuff's a little bit embarrassing obviously the blackface thing is embarrassing but it's yeah. mercifully br- brief um but overall yeah not 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 bad uh last thing i mentioned is that um the uh and now I, I, I can't remember how you feel about this because I know Scott and I have had conversations about like is the official title of the movie the way that it appears on screen or is it the way that it appears in say the copyright or whatever do you know what I'm saying I would I, I feel like on screen on screen okay because um, I feel like that sometimes movies might not even have a title card right that's true yeah um, so anyway so if if you're if you and Scott are right uh, about this then the official title of the movie is, uh, spells the word intelligent with only one L as a little joke. Oh, okay. That's um, fine. So anyway, thought I'd mention that. Uh, what did you watch? All right. I saw Jimmy Chin and Elizabeth Chai. Oh boy. How would you, I'm sorry. I, how would you say this? I feel so bad. Jimmy Chin, Elizabeth Chai. Oh boy. 
Vassar Hellier? Vassar, yeah. Um, look, when your last name's Smith, everything is a mystery to you. Um, okay. Uh, so, yeah, I saw Free Solo, and I was, I was very... Uh, I've had the screener sitting in my house for a while, and... You know, it's one of those things like when you have screeners, you're reluctant to go out into the world to see stuff. But uh, I do have my uh, AMC members pass. And I saw you. I didn't realize you did that. Yeah. And uh, you got to. Well, and that's if it were and if I lived in almost anywhere else in the country, I feel like it wouldn't be worth it for me because. AMC doesn't really show the stuff that I want to see. But there's there are AMC theaters in Los Angeles that show the stuff I want to see. Um, so for example, I went to a nice big IMAX screening of free solo Mm. and I was very glad that I, that I did. Um, it is a beautifully shot film and it is about, uh, this guy whose name escapes me. I think his name is Alex. Um, who I thought his name was free solo. You know, that's his, like, that's a political stance. Um, he's tired. Of, he, he didn't want to have to pay no, to see Solo, no, a Star Wars story. he wants to see the Lord Miller cut. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Disney, free it. Free it yeah. for us. <laughs> I swear I'm going to climb up this mountain without a rope if you don't do it. Um, that was one of the dumber riffs we've <laughs> ever gone on. Like but, that um, one who lived in a tree for two years? Yeah. It worked. Did it? Yeah. That tree stands to this day. She, she she came down though, right? Yeah, but she got it protect like oh, officially okay. designated protected. It. it took like two years of living in a tree, uh, but uh, she did it. So I guess it worked. She saved that one tree. Yeah, I don't know why global warming still exists. Yeah, this woman saved a tree. Was there something special about? I'm, I'm was there something special about that tree specifically? I, I don't remember. Or was actually. it more like symbolic? I think it was symbolic. Okay. I think it was a particularly old tree. Okay. Uh, I shouldn't make fun. I do respect that level of commitment. I know. Um, I don't yeah. commit to anything. Um, <laughs> hey, we've done this. We for committed. Yeah, years. admittedly. Um, and no one's tearing it down. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, this has been a big political stance <laughs> for me, David. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's it's a really um, it's just a really well put together film, and it is a nice little portrait of obsession because, of course, that's what it is. Um, throughout the film, the guy lists off the people, uh, that die doing this. And he himself, um, very easily could, there are moments when he does fall, but it's during a test run. And so he does have a rope and it's just like, Oh, if he was okay, so you can fall. Um, and so, uh, it's, but this is just a thing that drives him. And you also see he has a relationship with, uh, his girlfriend and this is kind of a new thing in his life. And so he's sort of trying to navigate, okay, how do I do this extremely dangerous thing when someone wants me to come home at the end of the day, you know, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So, uh, he's definitely in a place of transition. And what I like is that the film feels very uncompromising to me. Uh, And I think one of the ways that it is that is the filmmakers choose to incorporate themselves into the story as they should, because when it comes right down to it, this is not a, this is not a standard documentary. Like this is a guy who could die if you distract him because you want to get a better shot or something Mm -hmm. like that. Like, so it's not, it's a situation where the process 
plays into the thing that they are actually documenting. Yeah. Um, I read an interview with, I think it was with the filmmakers. Okay. Where they asked him like, are you sure we're not going to distract you? And he was like, basically I'm climbing wall without a rope. Like if that's the thing that's going to distract me, I shouldn't right. be doing this in the first place. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's, it, it, that is a constant consideration for them. And it's more like less distraction, more like we just don't want to get in his w- literal physical way. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and so they know just as much about like the route he needs to take as he does. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a big thing is that this is not easy photography. And so a lot of the cameramen are not, a, not maybe not professional, but experienced mountain climbers themselves. Oh who over the, over the years have gotten to be friends with this guy. And they are also thinking like they can't be passive. So many documentary filmmakers and, and just filmmakers in general are, are a little bit passive and probably at a bit of a remove from their subject. This is a situation where this is their friend and they could actually be documenting his death, Mm -hmm. um, as he does this. And so, uh, so it feels very authentic. And then there, there comes a moment like we've been, building to him climbing this mountain and he kind of call he kind of calls it and says uh you know what not feeling it and then the movie could be over at that point um and it and so then it says like three months later so it's like okay so good for them for sticking with him because i think they realized that part of it i'm sure that they thought like well i guess our climax doesn't exist anymore um because he's not gonna do it but i think they see that like no 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 i think they have an, an, an enough of an understanding of their subject they're like oh he's gonna do it okay he just needs more time and and in the meantime we're gonna stick with him and so in the midst of uh this really this kind of epic visual style um i like that they still keep the focus on this guy and kind of asking the question what kind of person would ever do this sort of thing but it doesn't treat i don't think they treat it like a freak show either like they it's it's very much the kind of movie that i wanted this to be i was worried that it would just be I was worried that it was going to be so consumed with like, isn't this awesome? Or that they would just play him up as some kind of unknowable person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they don't, they really, they, he's, he's a person, he's flawed, uh, but he's also kind of charming in certain ways. And, uh, they just find the whole thing fascinating, but not, um, not unattainable as far as our own understanding. So there's, there's a lot going on in the movie and I highly recommend it, uh, specifically in the theater. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if I'll ever get around to watching it because my, literally my palms are getting sweaty. Just listening to you talk about it. It's, it has its moments. Yeah. Yeah. I never saw man on wire or the walk. Yeah. No, Uh, I I just, I, yeah, I don't, I don't need like the, the Dwayne John, Dwayne, the rock Johnson movie skyscraper had me like, really? Uh, hmm. tower heist was another one that I was, I don't know if you ever saw tower. tower no, heist. I, I did not. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, that was another one that had me sort of, uh, I occasionally ended up looking away, look away from the screen. You know, what's interesting is that this might just be me. I think it does such a good job of getting you to connect with this guy that, when he is confident, which admittedly he is most of the time, but you can tell when he, when he isn't confident and when he isn't, that's when I get a little nervous, but when he is, I'm not hmm. scared at all. It's just, it's that kind that of thing where like he, it is good filmmaking. And it's uh, I was surprised how much I responded to the film. 
All right, so next up for me um, is a four-hour-long movie called A Bread Factory, okay. uh, which you'll remember... Um, Scott talked uh, about it, Scott right? Scott put it yes. on his top ten list, yeah. actually. And uh, I don't blame him. The movie is astounding, and mm-hmm. it is such a singular personal work by by Patrick Patrick Wang. Or maybe personal's not even really the word, right word, because um, I don't think that there's like a director avatar. What I mean is that it's just... It, it feels like it could have come from no one but the person it came from, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Uh, it's the story of a small southern or mid-sized. We don't really get a real sense of how big the town is, but a smallish southern town that has an arts center called the Bread Factory um, because it's in an old bread factory. And they uh, teach um, art and theater and filmmaking classes to to kids. And then they also put on um, plays and host traveling artists and filmmakers and performers and stuff like that. Um, and because of the first part, uh, uh, the thing they do, um, the, the teaching, they, um, receive part of the town's school budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then what has happened at the very, very beginning of the movie is that some, um, bigger name performance artists from the art world have decided to, they like this town. They're going to set up their sort of offices and have an, have their own version of the thing in the same town. And so it's weirdly like it's a version of like, oh, no, the corporate interests are coming in. Yeah. But it's like they're like avant-garde performance. <laughs> like the bad guys are avant-garde yeah. performance, are performance artists and the good guys are sort of salt of the earth, uh, you know, uh, artsy types. Um, yeah. Uh, Tyne Daly and I forget the other woman play the two, uh, a couple who run um, the the thing. There's uh, the only, yeah, Tyne Daly is definitely the biggest name who's in it, except Jeanine Graflo is in it at the very beginning. Mm. It's very funny. She plays a filmmaker who's touring with her newest film and also a guest lecturer to a bunch of kids. Like she's teaching filmmaking to a bunch of kids yeah. that she has no patience for. Uh, she has no patience for anyone. That's actually kind of what's, uh, that sounds familiar. Uh, yeah. Um, Jean Graff was really great, but again, she's, if you're, she's gone after the first 10, 15 minutes of the movie. And then the only other name that I know, James Marsters from Buffy the Vampire, who played Spike on Buffy the Vampire oh, okay. Slayer has a sizable role as well. Other than that, it is not, um, a lot of known actors, but it's, uh, he gets a lot of great, uh, performances, uh, out of them because what the, so the, the first half, uh, like I said, it's, it's a four hour movie. It's split into two, uh, almost exactly equal two hour parts. Uh, I think the first one is actually two minutes longer than the other one, but, um, that's building up to this hearing in front of the school board, I guess, or the town council about, reappropriating those school funds oh, yeah. the bread factory needs to this new, uh, they're called, uh, uh, Ray may or may may Ray. That's okay. what they're called. Uh, um, and so basically this place is saying, uh, because the town is saying like, well, you make money off of the operas that you put on and stuff like that. And they're like, no, we don't. Yeah. This is a small town. Like there's not enough people coming to the opera to keep us afloat. We need the, the school board funding. And so the, first half leads up to the hearing Mm -hmm. and that's the climax of the first half. And then I won't say what the, um, what the result is, uh, of the hearing, but the second half, suddenly the movie based on what is something in that hearing seems to have broken loose and infected the entire town. And suddenly the movie becomes something more, 
fantastical and magical realist in a way. It, it, it starts with a, uh, the second half starts with a silent, almost pantomime uh, recap of the entire first half. And then as they go through the day, suddenly people, regular townsfolk are breaking into song or breaking into dance hmm. or just performing in, uh, in public. And I, I feel like what Patrick Wang is really uncovering is he's he's starting with the idea that art you know okay this is going to be here's an episode we should do someday which is the idea maybe it's too vague uh about films that we feel like are accidentally in conversation with one another you know oh sure talk about we tend we like group things together by the year they come out and sometimes that sort of reveals things but um I am probably one of a very few number of people who is, uh, well, not that many people have seen a bread factory. Mm-hmm. Even fewer people have seen Johanna Hogg's the souvenir because it played at Sundance and it hasn't played anywhere else yet. Mm-hmm. So I'm one of a very small group of people who has seen both those movies and an even smaller group who didn't <laughs> see a bread factory until after they'd seen a souvenir. And so I'm probably, I might be the only person who was thinking about the souvenir when I was watching the right. bread factory, but there's a part in the souvenir where they're talking about, Art and Leo Tolstoy's definition of art, which is basically just, uh, he said a man, but you could say a person, um, has a feeling and then attempts to create something that gives that feeling to other people. Mm-hmm. That's like all that art is. And so a bread factory is, uh, I, I, I think really looking at the idea that art comes in more forms than the more codified ones that we assume that it does. Right. We assume, you know, there's the popular arts and the fine arts and there's, uh, you know, sort of a drop down menu of each yeah. of different types of art, but art is just expression and could be in anything. Um, and only, uh, but what the, what the second half gets into, you know, is, which is a thornier version. It's going, it's not content to just make that point. It goes deeper in, in saying that there's maybe only certain people who have not that they're like Danny and the shining and they have a gift, but right. certain people have chosen to tune into the wavelength where they are receptive to art and forms of expression outside of the codified ones. Right. And, um, that can be a beautiful thing, but it, can also be a really messy thing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to, to interpret everything that everyone does and says as some sort of feeling of their personal expression and that it's a work of their, in their ouvoir, you know, yeah. it's just like, I was just rearranging the throw pillows on the couch, isn't it? Right. You know, but that could be art. Um, uh, it, the fact I think it needed the four hours to, to, to sort of make the observation in the first half and then say, okay, if that's true, then what does it look like in the real world and, and get both yeah beautiful and, and messy. Uh, the movie is also really funny, which, um, uh, so it's the, it's the, it's actually the third Patrick Wang's third feature, even though it came out in the U S before his second feature, which also came out this fall called the grief of others, which I haven't seen yet, but his first feature in the family is also very long. (laughs) That one's a mere three hours though. Okay. Very long, very emotional, very personal, and also, uh, surprisingly funny. And that's what uh, a bread factory is. It's, uh, I mean, I, I know a four hour movie seems daunting, but this isn't, uh, um, you know, this isn't, 
I don't know, watching paint dry or whatever. I was going to say something mean about a different filmmaker. And I was like, that's not the point I hear right now. Um, uh, it's a, it's a surprisingly fun watch for a four hour yeah. long movie. Uh, and I feel like I would, do you think being, I never, I don't consider myself a theater person, but having done theater, I do tend to like movies about theater. Yeah. Do you yeah. feel like a theater person would enjoy it more than um, most people? Maybe. Um, uh, yeah, maybe because the, the first half in particular is sort of, because uh, like I said, in the second half, the everyone's expressing themselves all the time. The first right. half is more rigid in that there's the, the real life scenes and there's the scenes of them rehearsing a new translation of Hecuba. Okay, and so it's clearly using scenes from this particular translation of Hecuba to to um, to comment on the other things. But uh, uh, yeah, I think those all those rehearsal scenes will be very familiar. <laughs> yeah, uh, to to a lot of people. Um, there's also a beautiful, uh, there's one scene where, um, the woman who's playing Hecuba's daughter, uh, the young woman, um, leaves town to go pursue an actual acting career. And so they very quickly have to find a replacement. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is in the second half. And so they, uh, the, the, just the wait, the waitress at the diner, they're like, you'd make a good, uh, person. So there's this scene of her, of her rehearsal in which, uh, I'm getting emotional just talking about it, even though they were, it might not sound emotional. At first, she is the what you would expect an une- inexperienced actor <clears throat> to be doing. And then we see Tyne Daly's character as a director without telling her how to perform. Yeah. And we see Tyne Daly's character, and then I can't remember the woman who plays Tyne Daly's partner. We see her performing as Hecuba. And between those things, we see the actress that was inside this young woman all along yeah. come out because it was coaxed out, not forced out, you know, yeah. or not trained. It, it's, it's an incredibly beautiful scene and I'm honestly getting emotional just thinking about it. It's, I mean, I, I, uh, I would like direct, uh, short skits in the occasional play, uh, when I was in high school and such. And, uh, I was of the opinion and I think I still am that everybody can act it just it requires the right director it may be the right part and an actor willing to like find something Mm -hmm. in themselves uh and when you see that happen it is really neat um like i directed a a full-length play at my church in southern missouri and it was put on by like our youth group and they were like, J- I had to, I had to get, we didn't have a big enough youth group to cover all the parts. So it's like, all right, I'm going to pull in a couple of ringers, uh, from high school, from my high school. Um, but like some of the people that I was working with, like with weren't actors at all, but they were willing to do it. And so just kind of work is spending a bit more time with them, uh, to get them to understand like what this person is feeling and why without ever actually giving a line reading. And then mm-hmm. suddenly, and then, and then it clicks and suddenly you're like, Oh, they're doing stuff I did not expect. Right. Uh, yeah, I was hoping right. they were just going to remember the lines and where they need <laughs> to stand. Uh, and it's really, it's exciting to see it. All right. So uh, next up for me is a movie that is, uh, opening in theaters this week. Um, it's hard to talk about the movie without talking about the <laughs> the controversy, I guess, or the idiocy that came up around it this week. But I'm talking about uh, Hans Petter Molen's Cold Pursuit. Oh yes, the movie that Liam Neeson was, uh, I guess, plugging mm-hmm. when he completely un 
prompted told a story about a time that he walked the streets looking for a black person to kill because a black bastard a black bastard to kill because because a black person had raped his friend yeah you know it's it's very strange while the, th- the, the mystery of all of this to me is where did this come from? Not like, it's just like, well, the, it was, the, you know what this reminds a, me of? <laughs> like, he was trying to make a point about revenge because the movie oh, okay. is about revenge. Okay. That's clearly what he was trying to make a point. And then somehow didn't realize that it's, it's one thing that like Blue Ruin is a movie about the folly of revenge. Yes. Right. But he's trying to kill the guy who killed his dad, mm-hmm. or that he believes killed his dad. Well, yeah. you know. Anyway, um, uh, man, that's get good Spoilers of <laughs> yeah. Blue Ruin. But um, the fact that Liam Neeson, it didn't occur to him that looking for any black person, black, right. specifically the phrase, yeah, the phrase he uses, "black bastard," any black person that that's maybe going to distract from your point a little bit, and uh, is yeah. clearly awful well i think he knows that it's awful i i'm I, it's weird i'm gonna i understand his instinct to say it which is like i was so angry and irrational that i had a mindset that i clearly condemn now like i appreciate him saying that i it is uh, i and i understand why he i guess now i understand why he said it <laughs> just out of self-preservation you don't say it but like like we've all had moments where we're like explaining that he's learned his lesson he's talking he's still framing things around the revenge thing he doesn't seem to acknowledge at any point right that the the horrid race racial uh uh connotations of what he's doing i get well uh i see it as like i can i can connect the two i see it that like the irrationality of of a vengeful attitude leads to I, all I want is some kind of compl- even if it's completely stupid and racist I want some kind of catharsis like that's what but vengeance still, the is. But comes in. It's sort of like when people are like you know you know people blame their sexual misconduct on being drunk. It's like mm-hmm. mm, no alcohol didn't make you sure, sure. a sexual predator or yeah. a harasser. It freed that in you yeah it was already there and so i can see if a friend of mine was violated in that way i could mm-hmm. see being irrational right but i'm not i mean I, everyone has their own prejudices whatever but my mind wouldn't go to that wouldn't go to i need to take this out on any black person I, I don't i don't have that to begin with again i'm not saying i'm mm-hmm. squeaky clean everyone has prejudices some uh unexamined i'm sure that i have done or said uh thoughtless shit probably even more recently than i realize Mm -hmm. i meant to talk to you about that (laughs) i understand that but but i feel pretty confident just like i'm confident that i have i can clearly run for office knowing there are no pictures me in blackface that are going to service right um i have the same I, i i i wouldn't have had this reaction because it wouldn't have occurred to me to go just looking right. for a black man. Yeah, I think that's... Again, I, I don't want to give the impression I'm defending him. It's more just like... It's... I feel like we can't necessarily... We, we don't necessarily... Ha- we don't have any control over how we were raised. And the shit that gets put in our brains 
just by culture, by parents, whatever it is. And so in an instance, I'm sure up until the moment, I'm sure he would have said, yeah, of course not. I wouldn't think like that. And then the moment happens and anybody that bears some level of anybody that, that bears some level of commonality with the person that you are angry at, suddenly everybody is guilty. And in this case, his mind went to this thing, which is of course odious. Um, yeah. Am I using that word right? Yeah, no, you are. All right. It's of course odious. It's just, I'm saying that like, I, uh, you know, okay. It, it's not, it is not at all uncommon to say all people are this because of one instance. I don't think it's good in any situation. And okay, especially yeah, yeah. when looking for to hurt someone, I think that's particularly yeah. odious. Um, I'm going to stick with it for the rest of the episode. Um, so like it's, it's a thing where of course everything is, everything he said the mindset was a hundred percent terrible on a number of levels. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like not even just the one it's the, you know, the idea of, Oh, blaming all, you know, in his own way. I I don't think he phrased it this way, but like blaming all black people for what this one did, but it's like, but then also stalking the streets. Yeah. Bronson style. Yeah. (laughs) Charles Bronson. With the, with a, he used a specific like Irish term, like a cosh or something. I can't remember, yeah. but essentially a and even club the, or a bat. Even saying black bastard is a very is like an Irish thing. Uh, like I've heard just like that. Okay, I, I in like three or four different movies. Uh, okay. Like uh, the proposition was one of them. But anyway, um, and so I just uh, of course it's all terrible, hundred percent on multiple levels. It's more just like as he was talking about it, he. F- the vengeance thing and the irrationality of it, like racism is irrational. And I think he saw it as, is like, Oh, do you want to, you want to know how terrible the, the vengeful mindset is? Listen to this story from when I was young. And like, I think he, he was like the person saying alcohol made me a harasser saying vengeance made me racist. No, no. I, I think it, it, it's it, st- br- it still it had brings, to be in him. No, yeah, it bring it. The irrationality brings right. out something and made me aware of a thing. He didn't frame it this way, but like, and it made me aware of something even darker inside me. But um, what does it say? What do you? What does it say about him today that he didn't frame it that way? That that he does. He didn't. It didn't occur to him that what he was saying would be taken as some, about something more than just vengeance. Uh, that's troubling too, right? Uh, I don't know if I'd say it's troubling. I could see it as like, I don't think he went into this interview planning to have this, to say this and clearly got focused on like a very specific track. And when you're on, I'd say this to someone who admittedly just had a rather in-depth argument with my wife and I was, (laughs) I was in the wrong in a couple of ways. One of them was that I was so focused on the point that I was making, not that it was an incorrect point, but I was focused on the point that I was making. And Jen was like, you really are not hearing me here. And I was like, no, I no, no, I hear you, but I still have this point to make. (laughs) And so I can see him in the moment. If you had given him time forgiving than I am, which is something I should aspire to. Uh, Well, that's, Um, that's, that's kind of the, it's, it's something I've been thinking about lately is that granted it's not my place to forgive or not forgive a person but i think 
taking larger things into context, if the person, if he said it now, if he said, like, but if he, he did, if he it, did now. it now, pardon okay. me, if that was his attitude now, uh, and he was unrepentant, like everything even about his instinct to say it was, this was a, everything about what I'm about to say is a negative and I don't see it any other way. Okay. It's just right. like the, the degree to I, which, uh, he frames it as negative. This, none of this has anything to do with the movie. I'm no. sorry. It's unfortunate. But then have you heard the the latest ridiculousness in this saga today okay michelle rodriguez came to liam neeson's defense all right but her argument was basically liam neeson's not racist i can tell because of how he kissed viola davis in widows if he were racist he wouldn't have been able to kiss her that passionately something like that which I wonder if even, even Liam Neeson is like, thanks for defending me, but I am a professional actor. Yeah. It's like, I've been nominated for an Oscar, Michelle Rodriguez. Um, it's like, you know that there are, uh, there are like gay actors that have played straight characters, <laughs> right. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, all right. Or so, maybe Liam Neeson is like, ha I am racist. And I was able to trick Michelle <laughs> Rodriguez. <laughs> I like that. All right. So let's move on to Cold Pursuit, which despite all of this nonsense around it is actually a pretty good movie. It is a, it's a remake, right? It's a, the director remaking his own film. Oh. Which is a, also an episode we should do someday. I've thought about that. Before. We should. And then um, we'll spend 45 minutes on the fucking vanishing. Uh, yeah. Okay. So this is a Norwegian film, uh, which was, uh, the Norwegian name is Crafted Jotun. It was released here as In Order of Disappearance. Um, That's clever. Uh, yes, and uh, it's a movie about a small town. In this case, it's a fictional uh, ski resort town, tiny ski resort town, about three hours from Denver, uh, in which Liam Neeson is the guy who drives the snowplow. It's his job to sort of keep the roads open for both mm-hmm. locals and the tourists uh, and skiers uh, uh, alike. Um, he has a nice, idyllic existence with his wife, Laura Dern, and his son. And then his son is killed by drug dealers. Okay. Essentially, basically his son worked at a, uh, an airport and one of his co-workers was in league with the drug dealers and crossed them and he ended up just being like collateral damage. Mm. And so Liam Neeson, once he figures this out, takes it upon himself to take down these, these drug dealers. And he sort of works his way up the ladder of drug dealers, like in a video game, uh, yeah. killing people. <laughs> um, but he's just like, I gotta, I gotta hit this drug dealer in the right place three times in a row and I'll kill him. Uh, yeah, exactly. But the movie, I think, I, I don't know enough. I know it was Stellan Skarsgård, I think, in, oh, okay. the, in the Norwegian movie. But I think, um, in this case, casting a post-Taken, post-Taken 2, post-Taken 3, yeah. post-The Commuter, nonstop, unknown, like all of these things, yeah. Liam Neeson makes his point even more because the movie is actually a critique of this kind of mm-hmm. story. Um, or not of this kind of story, but this kind of mindset. Because the main sort of big clever conceit of the movie is that every time any character dies on the movie, they get a sort of a black screen and an epitaph. Their full name, and then a sort of like a, you know, you see those yeah. symbols for headstones that would adorn whatever their religion is. Right. Do you know what I mean? Every character gets one of those. And so it becomes, it's a, the movie's a very dark comedy. Yeah. Very dark comedy. Um, uh, is it the, 
I mean, in your opinion, it is meant to be oh, yes, very, amusing. Very, okay. very much. Um, one of the, like the scene when, um, Liam Neeson, and Laura Dern go to identify their son's body and he's on the lower shelf of the morgue, like refrigerator. Mm-hmm. And so they have to like pump, like with the guy has to pump with his foot to get the oh. body to raise up to a normal level. And it goes on like forever with this body, just like creeping up inches by inches. It's really dark. <laughs> it's very darkly <laughs> funny. Really... Um, oh boy. Uh, and so it becomes, darkly funnier and funnier just how many people die in this movie Mm. not just because he kills them that's also part of the joke is that Liam Neeson's personal body count in the movie he doesn't actually rack up that many but what he sets in motion ends up having getting people from rival drug gangs who aren't even involved killed it It gets more innocent people killed including further members of his own family I'm not going to give any spoilers to that um, it's not Laura Dern. There's other people in the movie that are in the movie. Oh, thank God. Um, yeah. Um, uh, it, and, and so I think the, the, critique is a, the critique is a good one. I think it's also maybe a little too on the nose to be as emotionally effect- affecting as it might be. Right. It is a movie that works mostly, uh, you know, academically, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, but there's some great, I mean, you know, the idea, uh, I mean, a, a, a car chase in which the car doing the chasing is a snowplow kicking a giant snowplow truck kicking up snow as it goes is a cool visual thing. Yeah. It happens a couple of times in in the movie. So the movie's not without its more artistic flourishes. It's not just mm-hmm. a clever idea, um, but it is mostly a clever idea. Yeah, uh, yeah but I would I, I would recommend it if you can stomach. Uh, Maybe maybe wait on the maybe wait to see it until you don't uh, aren't sickened by Liam Neeson or just <laughs> at the moment or more specifically because if you see it and then maybe just don't tell anybody you saw it just yeah. because like you're going to be met with a deep sigh yeah. or something like yeah. that. And then you'll probably respond that yeah. way as well. Just, just see it and be like, I'm going to hold off on, it. I'm going to not throw this on the old letterbox for a yeah. while. Um, I will mention one more funny thing about the movie. William Forsyth is in it. Hey, all right. He's always great. He plays a former gangster who is now retired in this small town, mm-hmm. <laughs> but he has taken retirement to mean that he is, He's gone full like Jimmy, like Parrot Head. He wears Hawaiian shirts and shorts and flip flops, even though every scene is surrounded by four feet of snow. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's a very funny, that's uh, funny. Uh, recurring image. Every time we see him, it's kind of funny. Uh, all right. What did you watch? Okay. This is a rewatch, but it's been a while. Uh, and. As I said last week, uh, or maybe two weeks ago, I don't remember, uh, you can always tell when I'm talking about a film that we watched for class. Um, Jean Renoir's The Rules of the Game, which I haven't seen in many years. And uh, it is uh, marvelous. I think I have a greater appreciation for it now. I think I still prefer... I've seen three Renoir films. I saw The Crime of Monsieur Lang. I saw... Grand Illusion and Rules of the Game. I think I still prefer Grand Illusion. And um, I actually haven't seen Grand Illusion. Oh, yeah, I think you'd I think you'd love it. Um, but uh, for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that uh, one of the main characters is played by Eric von Stroheim, and he does a, a great job. But anyway, um, but yeah, uh, Rules of the Game. I mean, it's it's just such a, a it's an entertaining film. It's 
it is both light and heavy at the same time. Like it's just the style and the characters, everything just seems so pleasant to watch. But when you actually take the time to understand what is going on, both as far as the characters and then just the larger points being made about the, the class system and that kind of thing. Um, you realize like this is a, an, just an expertly made film and it, and it is, I would say is not something I say very often. I'd say it's a perfect film. It is, there is no other way to make this story and make and doing and do with it. What Renoir does, um, there's no other way to do it. Uh, this is the, uh, it never steps wrong, I think. Um, and that's, you know, I mean, it's 39. So like sound film had been around for a while, but like, this is just constant dialogue. And yet the camera is still very active. Um, at no point does, does, do the events feel just kind of sedentary. Um, there's just constant motion. Um, something that I, that I have started talking about more when talking about large ensembles is that it, it, he, Renoir seems to instinctively understand how long to spend with every one person or every subplot before pivoting to another one, uh, so that you are always aware of all of them at any given point. Um, you don't really forget anything. And probably just when you're about to, that's when he moves to this other thing. Um, and, uh, and so because I was teaching a class on French cinema of the thirties, uh, or a specific class that, that week, um, I did a little bit of research and what I found was that, uh, the film had, <coughs> sort of the skeleton of a script. Uh, it had a story and the, the characters had arcs, uh, but it was heavily improvised. What he did is he would go to each actor and he told them sort of obviously their motivations and their goals, but he also just said, this is the type you are. Okay. Like if I, I when I was talking about it in class today, I said like, if I said, Hey, uh, we're going to do like an improv game and you're going to be like a, a sleazy lawyer. Mm -hmm. That's a type. And it's a type that almost everybody would have a take on. Um, and they would, and she's like, you're going to have within that you have to improvise your dialogue. And I guarantee most people would be able to do it. And so it's a testament to his actors being able to, mm -hmm. to visualize what these characters are, but it also speaks to just how firmly, um, Renoir was working within uh, like the stereotypical class system, which is like, hey, you're upper class and, and you're like your account you're, or you're a military man, whatever it is. And so people like the, the actors at the time, probably everybody in France at the time had such a clear idea of what each of those types were because the class system was so firmly in place uh, that it just allowed. And I don't mean to to downplay the actor's contribution of course it's, it's huge and uh, both individually and as an ensemble um but just that uh that a film that seems so beautifully written um and again like there it was uh somewhat rigidly structured but um could could come out of everybody understand uh, inherently understanding the project um it just speaks to it's along with it being a perfect film. It's almost a little miracle of a film that it managed to come out so wonderfully. Um, and yeah, I really responded to it, uh, this time around the first time I liked it a lot, but this time I genuinely love it. 
All right. Um, well, let's move on to a film that I genuinely hate. Oh, oh boy. Um, I, I saw uh, because I reviewed the Blu-ray, which uh, oh, I read uh, your shot back. In fact, I just put out the Blu-ray of George P. Cosmato's Cobra yeah. from 1986, and it is god awful. Yeah. Uh, have you seen it before? Uh, well, I saw some of it when I was a kid, uh, but I have a friend who um, has seen every Stallone movie and is fascinated with him, and so he has given me like the rundown on a lot of uh, some of the worst uh, Stallone movies. Worst slash best when you're a Stallone fan. Right. Um, but yeah, but, uh, so I saw some of it, and then he kind of gave me a lot of the rundown, and then with your review, it's like, oh boy, now I, now I have to see it. Yeah, the, I mean, it is the absolutely the pinnacle of the 80s Hollywood action movie in yeah. which it's a, a muscly played by his own rules essentially fascist yeah. um, cop or other sort of you know uh, law enforcement or military yeah. type figure taking on um, uh, just scads of bad guys who are pure evil and yeah. therefore there is no result no acceptable result other than to kill them. Right. And so that's all that, uh, Cobra, Marion Cobretti, um, does. Um, I, I'll tell you, I've not seen the, I had not seen the movie before, but I'm going to tell you why I knew his name was Marion Cobretti. Cause it's one of my favorite jokes that our friend in front of the show, Matt Belknap mm-hmm. made. Do you remember? So in 2006, they made Rocky Balboa. Right? Yes. And then you remember there was a Rambo movie in 2007, I think. Yeah. That it was initially announced as being called John Rambo. And then yes. it was just being called Rambo. But it was initially announced as being called John Rambo. And so on the old a Special Thing message boards, <laughs> um, uh, Matt just put a post that was over and over again, please make Marion Cabretti. Please make Marion Cabretti. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so because of that, oh, like 12-year-old joke that our friend Matt made, I knew his name was Marion Cabretti, which is true treated as a bit of a, re- a reveal in the movie hmm. um, that uh, and maybe the m- most the closest movie gets to sort of psychologically being psychologically interested in the character is the idea that he is as macho as he is because his name is Marion yeah um, anyway uh, and it, it's just it's the movie is ridiculously terrible it is a merciful 87 minutes <laughs> but still too long Um I mean, it has a fun supporting cast. It's got uh, um, an actor named Rennie Santoni, who you might know know as Poppy from Seinfeld. Hey, all right. <laughs> um, who plays uh, Cobra's um, uh, enabling partner <laughs> yeah. um, and a junk food addict. That's his thing. Oh, yeah, the product placement is hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so egregious throughout. Uh, Brigitte Nielsen plays the love interest. Uh, another Seinfeld connection is a corrupt cop played by Lee Garlington. Lee Garlington, yeah. Who was in the v- pilot episode of Seinfeld as, I think she was, uh, the character was written to be a regular, because Elaine is yeah. not in the pilot. Yeah, but she uh, was just going to be a, wa- a waitress, a wait- right, at the, the, waitress at the coffee shop. coffee shop that yeah. they go to, and was going to be, I guess, someone they chatted with every episode. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, was, I guess, they wrote her out and wrote in Elaine. Yeah, I think because I, I've yeah I've watched that making up and they said like she did a great job, but it was one of those things that like she is because at the time, you know that character uh, was would stay at the coffee shop. Kramer wasn't going to leave his uh, his the building. Oh right, and yeah. so like they're like we need someone to we need more than just Jerry and George going out into the world. Yeah. Um. Anyway, I it, the movie apparently 
the there's a uh, rare bootlegged work print out there of the full two hour movie, which is supposed to be incredibly bloody. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that it was mostly just a half hour of gore that got cut out of it. I'd be partially interested to see that. See George P. Cosmatos go go nuts with that, but uh, it's the movie's not. It, it, it's not really worth your time unless you are. If you're into this sort of thing and you collect Blu-rays, the Blu-ray is very nice. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> um, it has a lot of new special features, new in- like interviews with with members of the cast. It, it's, it looks good. You know, this does have a good cast. Uh, yeah, it's got Val Avery in it. He's awesome. Uh, who's that? He's the guy. He's been in a billion things, but my first thought is uh, he was in Faces. He was like the the salesman guy. He kind of has okay. a okay. he's that sort of New York. He has sort of a high pitched voice and uh, usually a mustache. But like Art Lafleur is in it. Art Lafleur, yeah. What do you know Art Lafleur from? Because I know him from an episode of Angel mostly. I mean, he's been in a lot yeah, of stuff. Really, really tough. Um, a ton of stuff. Yeah, what a tough. A tough, a tough of, of tough of stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. Yeah. It's, uh, we, we, I think we could do an episode about, maybe it'd be too long. We'd have to do a series on like movies about these type of play by your own rule uh, yeah. guys. Like yeah. not, I mean, I guess vigilante, but I guess just, you know, renegade. I went in high school. I made a, a film called Glock renegade cop. Oh, that's right. Um, that was sort of a throwback to this and I hadn't even seen that many of them. Uh, all right. Next up. I saw another movie that is out this week in theaters. It is Adam Shankman's What Men Want, which is a okay. remake of What Women Want, the mm-hmm. Nancy Myers, Mel Gibson, uh, Helen Hunt, mm-hmm. uh, Marissa Tomei movie um, from 2000, right? 2000, yeah. Uh, which I never thought was that great. Yeah. Um, this one, I expected it to be an embarrassment. Oh, okay. Uh, it's actually not bad. It's also not great. It feels a little... Uh, superficial and, and half-baked or, or at least it shouldn't because it actually uses the premise and the fact that it's a both a gender and racially swapped mm-hmm. uh, premise because it's Tragic P. Henson in the Mel Gibson role. It actually uses that to bring up some good questions and some good issues, but I don't really feel like it has the follow-through on most of them. Right. Some of them it does. Specifically, the idea of her being because she plays a sports agent so she's the only female agent it's a male dominated industry and that part is the most interesting in the sense um that uh basically every every paranoia she's ever had about the way that her coworkers think of her is pretty much confirmed right um and then the movie doesn't the movie it isn't a lesson where it's like oh she learns to be more compliant with men it's actually the the opposite you right. know because the the uh, again did you ever see nancy myers yeah, movie? yeah so in there the issue is he's a man he's not in touch with his feminine side right yeah it's not the case here tragic behavior's character is very much in touch with her quote-unquote masculine traits right. and in fact part of the reason she can't connect with men in a lot of ways is because it's it's more on the men than on her they can't right. they can't handle her being as strong-willed and independent and ambitious and vocal as she right. is. Um, and so the, the, the way it plays out is, uh, is different than you'd expect. And in that, in that, in that sense, I think it's quite good, quite well done, but most of what the, the rest of it is just passable. The movie's kind of ugly to look at. It looks like it was shot cheaply. Yeah. Um, you've got a pretty good, 
cast. Yeah. Um, including uh, Josh Brem- Bremer? Bremner? Uh, Brenner, yeah. Brenner. Josh Brenner, right. yeah, he's good. Um, but you've got like uh, this. Okay, so Phoebe Robinson, I swear to God, I listen to Two Dope Queens. I've watched the HBO special. I know she's funny. But if I just watch movies like Abitha and this, I wouldn't think she was funny. I don't know why hmm. filmmakers or ever can't seem to, to translate what's funny about Phoebe Robinson into her playing characters. It just doesn't seem to work. Um, but yeah, like Max Greenfield, uh, kind of, uh, mm. uh, he's fine, but he's not really funny in it. And, uh, also who's the guy who used to be on the daily show. It's like Jason Jones. Is that his name? Oh, I don't know. Um, I mean, I know a lot of people that name doesn't sound familiar to me. Something. Anyway, he's also not particularly funny. Uh, the people who are funny, strangely, Eric Badu, R and B singer okay. is hilarious as the, um, psychic slash, hairdresser slash pot dealer that gives her the, uh, the, the, the spell or whatever that makes yeah. her able to, 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 um, to hear men's thoughts. Um, Tracy Morgan plays the father of, so she's a sports agent. Her sort of like arc is that she needs to sign as her client, the, uh, projected number one NBA draft pick, this kid, Jamal Barry. Mm-hmm. And, um, Tracy Morgan plays his dad, Joe Barry, a.k.a. Joe Dalla, who I don't know how much you follow sports news, but do you know who LeVar Ball is? LeVar Ball is the father of more than uh, one NBA, NBA okay. player. No. And he is, uh, I mean, he's raised great basketball players, but he is also just a completely delusional, but like very outspoken sort of quote-unquote entrepreneurial uh yeah, <laughs> dadager and so tracy morgan as that character is pretty much the funniest thing in the movie okay. he has a line i'm not even going to give you the context of the line at all but he says in his tracy morgan booming voice of course he says the worst thing to happen to u.s china relations since richard nixon shot and ate a panda <laughs> <laughs> which I laughed harder at that than anything else in the movie. I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for here's, <laughs> let me ask you this. Okay. I don't mean to, uh, this is going to sound shitty, but it's something that I observed after Tracy Morgan's accident. Um, I noticed he doesn't, he doesn't have exactly the same cadence. It's a lot slower. Uh, and oh, so like, I hadn't really thought about that. Yeah. Like when he was on comedians and cars getting coffee and then I think I saw him on Conan and he says the same things. He has the same comedic thoughts, Yeah, but the, and the cadence is right. But the timing, it's just like someone took Tracy Morgan and just slowed him down a little bit enough that I'm like, Oh, I noticed it. Huh. And, but I and as, re- as a result, I didn't, uh, I didn't find it that funny, huh. but it could be that like, that was shortly after yeah. he had recovered, and so maybe he's kind of back to where, yeah, I, I think, where I think he was. Really here. And then the other person I'll mention, um, I've always been a fan of Wendy McClendon Covey. Oh, absolutely. Wow. Wendy McClendon Covey, yes. right? Yeah. Who's on the Goldbergs, but of course was on Reno 911. Mm-hmm. Um, and she plays uh, one of Traji P. Henson's oldest friends who has since become... Um, I don't know if she's supposed to be born again or she's just like a holy roller type who is very um, uh, sanctimonious. She's also always sort of using her connection to um, or her supposed connection to Jesus to position herself as above the other people, but not in a, in a way that is smug without her meaning. Sure. Anyway, it's a, it's a very funny and very specific character. And also there's a, 
uh, I, I guess there's a the reveal that she doesn't actually go to church. She just watches it on TV on Sunday morning. Oh, boy. Is, uh, That's uh, nice. Particularly funny. Not um, super uncommon either. Uh, yeah. Uh, so the movie's, yeah, it's not, it's definitely, I think it might have benefited from lowered expectations. Sure. Um, uh, but um, it's not bad at all, but it also feels like there's a lot left in the tank, as it were. Is there, this is something that bothered me about what women want, and I get the impression that one men, what men want is not operating on much of a higher level uh, as from this comedic standpoint, which is, <coughs> like, does she ever tune in to what a guy is thinking, and it is just, it has nothing to do with anything? Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's a few things when she's, like, walking through the office where you just hear snippets of people just... Okay. Um, uh, yeah. Um, cause to me, what, one of the funniest things would be like a situation where like she's in the office and like, there's a guy who's just like got it in for her, like just really looking to like undercut her or whatever. And she's like, and she's like, I wonder what he's thinking right now. And it is just like not stupid, but just completely random and not at all. Like, Oh my gosh, he's not thinking about this at all because like the thing that gets me about any kind of mind reading comedy is that unless it's something like Futurama or the Simpsons which tends to do pretty well with it like the the dumb shit I think of (laughs) I'm going to say 90% of the day uh, like it's like to me it's it's like uh, on those shows where like they say uh, have you watched the news and they turn it on and the story's just starting yeah. at that moment? They're like, no, 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 that's not how things work. If anything, they- Wait, what was going on before? Like, why did you call me to say, turn, turn on channel six? Yeah. Was it the, the previous news story that you wanted me to see? Right. And like, Oh shit, this isn't right. And so that's what I want in like a, in a mind reading yeah. comedy is you tune in wanting one thing and you get very much the opposite. Yeah. I guess, I mean the version of the thing you're talking about, which is a little bit more pointed is there is the guy who like got promoted over her mm. and he's, she like sees him the next morning after she gets the thing. And like, he says some, like, uh, he and his buddy, Max Greenfield, like say some sort of snide thing and high five. And then like his, his thought process is like, was that funny? Why did I say that? Everything I say is stupid. I, my chin is stupid. I hate myself. <laughs> that works. Yeah. That works for me. Uh, so that's, yeah, there's some, there's some good stuff. I, and the other thing I'm glad that you brought this up with the mind reading that, um, one of the major differences that I'm glad for, is that Nancy Myers? What women want? PG thirteen. Mm-hmm. This movie definitely an R rated. Absolutely. Um, yeah, there's some. It's pretty filthy stuff, well, yeah. which is um, Same. frankly it's about, the probably about right. Yeah, there yeah. is like one old, like older, dorkier white man she walks past who thinks something like, "Man, I wish I'd fucked a black broad before I got married." <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, there's some funny stuff. I just okay. wish, uh, I wanted it to be a little bit more, but it's definitely not bad. Okay. Uh, Europe, I think. Speaking of not funny. Okay. I, okay. I like that I said it wasn't that funny. And then I like named like five yeah. things that were funny. The, the, the problem is that you name those in a few <laughs> minutes right. and the movie's longer than that. Um, David, I have a problem. All right. There are movies I need to see. We are doing our top 10 soon. It's yeah. A little over a week. Like free solo. I could justify because I hadn't seen enough 2018 documentaries and I thought I would like it. 
I cannot, first off, this is a 2019 movie. I cannot justify it at all. I assumed it was going to be bad. Did that stop me from watching it? It did not. Not that I wanted to see it. The whole reason I wanted to see it is because I was curious to see how awful it was going to be. Uh, the answer is a lot. Okay. Uh, it's a lot awful. Um, and that is Greg Pritikin's The Last Laugh. The remake of the F, uh, F.W. Murnau 1924 film? No, I, no, no. I hope not. That's un- that would be even worse, I think be interesting actually to have like a sincere remake no this is a, f- a netflix film starring chevy chase and richard dreyfus oh, and andy mcdowell <laughs> oh, i i like i don't like chevy chase right i like richard dreyfus as a person i don't know if i'm a huge fan of him as an actor i think i do like him as an actor i think uh, he has some very interesting instincts i andy mcdowell is a fun i've always liked know, andy mcdowell yeah. uh, obviously there's a groundhog day but also um four weddings at a funeral yeah. which is 25 years old this year the uh, yeah. 25th year uh, blu-ray uh, anniversary blu-ray comes out uh, this month, I think a lot of notable movies are 25 years old now. Shawshank Redemption, Ed Wood, Pulp Fiction, Forrest Gump, Quiz Show. How about that? The Madness of King George. Anyway, um, I guess the, I guess the Lion King as well. Uh, 94 is a good year. Sounds like. it was a pretty good year. Um, but yeah, the thing that gets me, I have not seen stand up in a while. Okay, I haven't gone to a stand up comedy show um i did though we're not going to talk about it here i did watch uh while i was at the gym i watched the new ray romano netflix special oh. and i was i was a fan of his in the 90s and and i hadn't seen him do stand-up in a while and uh it was just fun to see kind of an old pro come back and uh, anyway um and so along those lines i mean if any stand-up comedian or stand-up fan we all know that if you have a movie about a stand-up comedian and the actor playing that person is not a comedian and the person writing the movie is not a comedian, it is going to be a fucking disaster because it would it's the most suddenly it's the most forgiving audience in the world because yeah. they're laughing uproariously. I didn't see that movie, The Comedian. I know you hated it, right? Yeah, and sometimes even when someone is a comedian... It just doesn't work because because filmmaking is too controlled a lot of the yeah. time. Like um, um, the movie The Hero with uh, with Sam Elliott, uh, Oscar nominated oh, Sam yeah. Elliott, has like stand up by Rhea Butcher and Ali Wong in it. Both very funny. Yeah, yeah. No, not I'm sorry, Cameron Esposito, okay. Rhea Butcher's uh, partner. Okay. Um, Cameron Esposito and Ali, Ali Wong are in it. Both very funny people. Mm-hmm. It falls completely flat uh, because it's just it doesn't feel like you're at a stand up show. The one exception to this is the film Lenny. Um, and I think I it's partially obvious child is a movie that did it well, but she's uh, the, but oh, they're, sorry, they're actual comedians. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In this case, I mean like Dustin Hoffman, not a comedian playing one, but first off, Lenny Bruce was not the, not kind of your standard comedian. And also the director was Bob Fosse, who I think, yes, director of film, but also had a theater background. And I think he understood sort of the, 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 in the moment vibrance of right, stand up comedy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this has none of that. The, everything about it is cliche. There are so many movies now about, and I don't, I don't begrudge it. I understand, but like, there's so many movies about getting older 
and what that means. And so you get like these icons usually of the seventies and early eighties now, like that show, the Comiskey meth, uh, method, mm-hmm. which I watched an episode of, and it's not bad. It's Chuck Lorre and it feels like it, but, okay. <laughs> but Michael Douglas is a very, is a great on-screen presence as in, as is Alan Arkin. And here you've got Chevy Chase and Richard Dreyfuss, like these guys, these icons of the seventies now making these movies about, well, I'm getting older now and stuff. And it's just like, Oh gosh, I, they're, Oh, they're going on a road trip. Do you think they're going to get high? Hey, look at that. <laughs> it's like, Oh, and look, they're going to show that. Hey, just cause you're old doesn't mean that you don't have a libido. There we go. Uh, it's just, it's that. So the story itself is so cliche. Yeah. And then Richard Dreyfuss goes up and he, He's working his hardest. Dreyfus actually does a does a pretty good job. Like the movie is very very bad, but it's not for lack of trying on his part. Chevy Chase phones it in, unsurprisingly. Um, and it's one of the things that I was interested that, that genuinely interested me was seeing Richard Dreyfus, who is an on screen presence I enjoy, um, and I think he does a, a fine job. But just you know we know a number of comedians and we know that when they have a bit they like it took and that is success and that is proven it took years to get there i guarantee you that this writer director did not spend that long honing right. uh the the dreyfus's like on stage bits instead he wrote something that he thought would be kind of funny and it's a little bit sitcommy it's like but sitcom humor doesn't work on stage certainly with an actor saying it and not a comedian. So it's just stuff like, and he's supposed to be not totally Rickles ish, but not far from it. Like, you know, he gets heckled his first, his first time up in many years and he like comes back at the guy and he just says like such, you know, I mean such just fast. I think facile might be the word for it. Like just, uh, like the guy is kind of this white trash type. I hate to use the term, but you know what I mean? Um, and so Dreyfus comes back and says, "Like, because it was nice of it was nice of the le- of the meth lab to let you out for a day or something like that." And it's like I don't know if that's how meth la- meth labs work, whatever. And then he sa- and then he says, "Like, and he says, like, nice mullet who does you know who does your hair NASCAR?" And it's like, well, what? And then and the audience is oh they're laughing, it's hilarious. They've apparently never seen comedy in their life. <laughs> <laughs> it just it reminds me of. Uh, I, I recently watched a, uh, a video, uh, you know, our friend, uh, Pete Holmes, uh, regularly comments on American Christianity, like, cause that is a, that is definitely a Protestant Christianity, pardon me. That is, that's definitely its own culture. And it's a culture that I've gotten frustrated with regularly. And one, and so he was watching, you know, those, Sorry, this is a long thing. I guess this movie sparked a lot of thoughts for me. Yeah. I apologize. You got to jump on your worst of 2019 list. <laughs> yeah, the, the only two 2019. I saw Glass and I saw The Last Laugh. But uh, you know those videos where someone has like a where people have like a joke off. No. Okay. It's it's often like celebrities where like you you and I would be facing each other and then we say jokes sometimes at the other person's expense or we're reading a joke um and the idea is the other person has to try not to laugh now okay now when it's the actors often they know each other and they have a good nice rapport and that's where the humor comes out like it was like ryan reynolds and josh brolin and that in itself is funny watching josh brolin say jokes is funny um but uh 
like cheesy, shitty jokes. Right. Not the way I'm talking about the last laugh. My boss told me one today. Okay, what do you got? It's so hard to explain things to kleptomaniacs because they take things literally. Hey, that's fun. <laughs> that's pretty good, That's right? a good one. I laughed. Um, but, uh, so I, uh, so there is like a Christian version of this. And I, I'm very familiar with shit-ass Christian jokes. They're the uh-huh. worst. They're, the, they're almost always pun-based and bad pun-based uh-huh. as well. Uh, and so Pete Holmes was on a show recently in which they were watching that. And he was he was getting increasingly angry. He goes, these aren't funny, but the other person is laughing like it's the funniest thing because to them it is. <laughs> they haven't seen anything else. Can you give me an example of one of these? <sighs> um, um, something like, uh, oh, I don't remember the setup. I just remember the terrible punchline. Um, it was something like, um, oh, okay. And I remember two of them now. One is just the punchline where is something about Jesus responding to like uh, something having to do with cars. And it's like, Oh, cause he was a car. Uh, he was a car painter. Get it? <laughs> God. Like horrible. Oh, that is awful. Horrible. Okay. And then there's one that I had heard when I was a kid where it's like, how do you, how do you make holy water? Uh, I don't know how. Okay. In this, the way I heard it when I was a kid was, uh, you boil the hell out of it. <laughs> Not bad. Good joke. Not yeah. bad. Okay. I like that. But the way this person says you, the bo- you boil the devil out of it. I'm like, people don't fucking say that. Yeah, that's you just don't want to say hell. Oh, that didn't even occur to me. Yeah. Infuriating, isn't it? That's infuriating. Like that's a jo- that's a joke you don't say because yeah. if you don't want to do it, you don't do it. That's how it works. Anyway, so Pete yeah. just got like he got so mad at at the culture that created people who laugh at jokes like that. And a lot. And so this is a long way to go to say like, when you watch something like the last laugh, it makes you, it makes you angry at the world created in the film that you're like, that this audience would find this funny because just like, this is not the world we live in. Uh And so how am I supposed to relate to these characters? And it's just that that was a long way to go to get there, but I thought you would enjoy the, the journey. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, all right. Uh, and then one more movie for the me. last laugh. Terrible. Um, and this is a movie, man, you, you know, there are movies. I should have seen this movie when I was in middle school or high school. In sure. fact, I knew it existed. All my friends liked it. And it's one of the movies I've just been meaning to get to for at this point, 25 years or whatever. I watched, Penelope Spheris's Suburbia. Oh, yeah. Have you ever seen? Yeah. It is incredible. It's really good. It's really, really good. Uh, it has the feel, it has its own kind of feel, but it also has the feel of something like Mean Streets or more recently Good Time, mm-hmm. where it's just like, it's a hangout movie that's also often very uncomfortable yeah. and also does not ask you it asks you to empathize with the characters as fellow human beings Mm -hmm. while not excusing the fact that these are thieves and they are sexist and racist and often homophobic Mm -hmm. um and they go around ruining people's days for no good reason yeah um like when flea is in the movie yeah he orders a blue slushy at a convenience store and then tosses the money so that the guy has to bend down to pick it up and then opens up the jar of like boiled eggs mm-hmm. and dumps his slushy in the boiled eggs. And, um, um, 
Yeah, and then puts it back in the guy. So when the guy turns around, he's got all this blue in his boy legs. Yeah. And then Flea says, happy Easter, asshole. And then leaves. <laughs> the guy didn't do anything wrong. Nothing he's wrong. just an ass. The, the Flea is just being an asshole. Yeah. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, there's a lot of characters like that. And yet the movie is so open hearted about and, and also so specific to this scene that it's still incredibly uh, moving and, and you're very much able to identify with these actors, even though most of them are not um, professional mm-hmm. actors. Most of them are just kids from the scene. Yeah. Um, and this is a scene, you know, this is 1983 Los Angeles hardcore punk scene, which is mm-hmm. two years after Penelope Sphere has made her landmark documentary, The Decline of Western Civilization, about, uh, uh, about this scene. So she knew of what she spoke, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, oh, there's something else that was on the tip of my tongue about, about the movie, but, um, oh damn, what was I going to say? Anyway, um, you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, I'm really drawing a blank on what I was, oh yeah, the other thing I was going to say is the thing that feels so specific that hadn't really occurred to me is is in the title suburbia because mm-hmm. it's not, uh, as to quote a line from another, another famous line from another Penelope spheres movie. It's not just a clever name. Um, <laughs> yeah, the movie does take place in suburbia, but in a specifically a tract of housing houses that had been <coughs> claimed by eminent domain and were sitting empty, waiting to be demolished to make way for the one Oh five freeway. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which was still, this was 83 and 94, 11 years later when they made speed was still under construction. Yeah. Um, took a long time to build the one Oh five, I guess, but it got me to the airport when I used to live in Hollywood. I don't even use it uh, that much. I did when I used to live in Hollywood. I okay. don't use the one Oh five. Cause when I lived in Hollywood, I would take the one Oh one to the one Oh five to the airport. But now that I'm in the Valley, I took the one Oh one to the four Oh five. That's right. Anyway, not the point. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, so, but, so the idea of, we tend to think usually correctly of the suburbia of suburbia as being this sort of a culturally arid place mm-hmm. where if you want to create something, you have to either go into the city or go out and be in the woods and be in like, yeah. you know, with nature or whatever, like suburbia is a, it's difficult for things to grow. And so the right. idea that there is a very culturally specific and, uh, you know, 30, five years later, 36 years later, a very, uh, culturally important mm-hmm. scene sprung up out of Southern California suburbia. Yeah. You know, and the scene, yeah, I mean, th- like I said, this takes place, um, where the one Oh five is now. Um, but the, um, the bands like the vandals who play live mm-hmm. in the movie, um, they came up playing at punk bars in Costa Mesa, which is orange County, which yeah. is crazy to think that orange County was a vibrant <laughs> part of the, punk scene because orange county uh seems so um you know it seems like the movie or the tv show orange county now i think social distortion Uh, came out of there right uh that sounds right um but uh i mean yeah a lot of a lot of bands did like i think you know are from orange county but that's yeah well (laughs) they're fine i like early offspring stuff yeah i think i do too the first self-titled album i actually really like um (laughs) anyway uh and I, and I and I also think there's something that is surprisingly relevant today in the Trump era about mm-hmm. the movie, about the the sort of villains of the movie who were um, uh, recently laid off GM workers right. who hate the punks. 
pretty much just because they're different. Right. And the idea of someone who represents a member of the status quo who has legitimate beef with the world, but decides to take it out on people who aren't really at fault and also behaves as if the law is very important, but only insofar as it applies to people outside the status quo. Sure. I think weirdly uh, reverberated with me today in a way that obviously penalty spheres couldn't have anticipated. But um, I see this as a movie that I am regretful that I uh, didn't see a quarter century ago and that I, but oh, would I have had a different, would I have thought they were too cool back then? Yeah, maybe. You've been like, oh, that fucking flea is great. Uh, Where, let, let me get a blue slushy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I saw it when I was, I saw it, uh, I had a friend named Jake who was into that uh-huh. scene, and so he showed it to me. I don't have much memory for it. I remember uh, enjoying it. To, I mean, I enjoyed it, but I also didn't really, I liked it as a movie, but I don't think I liked these characters. I didn't really respond to them yeah. because they're, there was a certain it's not so much that they're vapid they're just kind of vacant I guess and just the idea that like they're just kind of roaming around trying to figure out what to do uh, it reminded me of kids and a lot I think yeah. I saw did I see kids first I think I might have um, but just that sort of thing of just you know youth the youth walking around and you don't yeah. know what and they don't have anywhere to go or anything to do and that's the that's the worst situation yeah um, and then I actually also saw the it came out in the other suburbia in the nineties, right? Which is nothing, which is very, a, a very different thing. Well, I already I mentioned Eric Bogosian kind of an hour and a half ago. Yeah, um, but it's based on an Eric Bogosian play directed by right. Richard Linklater. It's not that great. That one. It's not that great. Um, this one definitely, it you know what I remember of it, which again at this point's been probably like yeah. twenty years, but. Uh, I remember it just feeling very, feeling kind of raw and vibrant yeah. and just felt like it captured, like if you're going to make a movie about the punk scene, that's how you do it. It's very visually powerful too. There's a shot that I think I'm going to like make my, my computer wallpaper or whatever. There's a part where one of the girls, they live in this, the flop house or whatever. And one of the girls overdoses. They don't know what to do with mm-hmm. her body, but they know where her parents live. She's a runaway. Yeah. So they take her, they wrap her body up in a blanket and take it to her parents' house. And there's a shot from the street of all these punks standing sort of sadly, but defiantly on the lawn of this like sort of upper middle class suburban home. Mm -hmm. that is so beautiful uh, that I want to print it out and frame it. Uh, 